Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. And we're back for another week of In the Landscape. And we're in studio to talk about another landscape design topic. And I am Kate Sadler, one of your hosts. With me in studio is Charles Sadler, my co-host. Happy to be here today. Hi, Charles. You have been traveling quite a bit. So this is the first chance we are getting back in studio after a few weeks kind of pre-recording or batch recording, as they call it sometimes. So you have a little bit to get us caught up on. What have you been up to out in the world? Well, let's see. There's a site visit, which is a coastal landscape in the Northeast. The challenges of that are areas that are known to flood, that are coastal Mm -hmm. tidal. People that are familiar with the different hurricanes in the Northeast, there's the flooding often occurs from the storm surge. So it's high tide. And sometimes it's with the more extreme weather, hurricanes, flooding. Any of these coastal properties, there's the ocean side, and then there's often a bay component where it's a peninsula or an island. So the flooding, many times it occurs from the bay side. And so it's like a back, it's flooding from the back almost. And so in the design process being, as the more I meditate on it, it's really like the ethics of planting. Can you ethically plant something in large quantities that is known, it's not going to survive saltwater inundation? There's all different types of wet soil. There's a heavy rainstorm. It stays wet maybe for a number of hours. Then there's flooding where it is, it's standing water for days or weeks. And so the plants that can tolerate that, it's a smaller list. Then there's the inundation from salt water where it's hours or days of, of salt water, standing water. And that's even a shorter list of plants, but there are plants that, that can handle that. And all of that is essentially going to inform the episode today. So we're going to be talking, we've talked before about irrigation, which is basically us providing water to our landscape in in a reasonable, effective, ecologically mindful way. We also talked a little bit about erosion and what can go wrong with water, having low-lying areas where you're collecting standing water, but that's a bit to do with the grading of your yard and still somewhat manageable. But today we're going to kind of talk about the climate and water changes and extreme weather and, and uh, ways of being mindful in our design practice as we go into these challenging conditions. And as you say, thinking of the ethics of what can we plant, you know, because <laughs> people pay quite a bit for the plantings. And if they're not going to last five years, then that's not really a great practice. So we're trying to right. shy away from that and, and aim toward um, sustainable design. When you hire a professional, there's Often, there's like an asymmetry of knowledge. The professional knows more than the client, often. But the ethics of it is even though you know better and the client might not know better, to trying to really steer it toward plants that can handle the extremes of weather and saltwater flooding. And So it's an educational process. Of course, you're, as a designer, job is to essentially make it look good no matter what. So you're still Correct. fulfilling the aesthetic desires of the client. And then it's maybe a, an easier task to sort of advocate for the plants that you think would make the most sense. Right. You know, and the same is true for waters there. Yeah. For waters, for plants that can do with less water if you're in a drought zone. And so it's kind of a balance, but today's focus is essentially on water. You and I have, well, I've lived on three coasts now, the West, the East and the Gulf. (laughs) (laughs) 
and you've gone from the the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Mm -hmm. So some of the considerations are the same. But we'll talk a little bit about what what to do if you're in a floodplain where there's rivers as opposed to oceans. And it's maybe freshwater versus salt, but you're still facing that standing water question. And of course, there's the coasts along the Great Lakes. And there, I would imagine you have to think quite a bit about freezing water. Oh, right. (laughs) how to get get by when that's maybe heaving ground and things like that. So it's a big topic. That's why we've returned to it a couple of times throughout the podcast so far. We've got some new listeners. We're seeing people kind of join and follow, and that's super exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know in the early days of the podcast, I would comment every episode on new listeners <laughs> because it's <laughs> such a thrill. We just want to say thank you for listening Thank you for participating, asking questions, being a part of the conversation. It's really nice to hear from our listeners and connect with them and share our garden knowledge if we can. It's a very cool community. And then to learn from the listeners, sometimes their questions, it could spur us to research something deeper or something we th- I thought I knew that I might not have known the full story or maybe the information I had is old information. Definitely. It's an evolving field and we are evolving as well. So it's good to continually get new information. I'm also thinking, as we mentioned, climate change and rough weather. We've mentioned before, of course, we're garden enthusiasts too. So we're watching Monty Don's American Garden series. Mm -hmm. So cool. And um, he visits Longview, which is one of the gardens here in New Orleans in the South that you recently gave a talk about correct right at Rizzoli Book Bookstore in Manhattan with the Institute for Classical Arts and Architecture. Mm-hmm. Just want to make sure I'm referencing everything correctly. Sounds like it was a great talk. It was great to see there are even listeners, podcast listeners that showed up. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and others, you know, from our landscape community. And the talk went really well. It was one of the first ICAA events I'd been to. And so seeing there are more or less enthusiasts which which attend these events and the ICA people, their background was very diverse. There were professionals, there were retired people, there were students, like I was anticipating, but they all had sort of that that like desire for knowledge, for for good information, for some level of entertainment. And so it was neat to meet them, see them face to face. And for those of you who are listening, um, as we get more listeners by the day, I, I suppose some listeners may be closer to us here in Houston, or they may be in the New York area. We're sometimes in the Portland area giving talks and attending conferences ourselves. Look for, we give the information about how to find us and how to connect with us toward the end of the of each episode. Mm-hmm. But if you go to our website and you want to take a look at, at some of our garden talk schedules and you want to come out and hear you <laughs> talk in person right. about gardens. That certainly is an option. You have one coming up this weekend, uh, Saturday, February 29th. Oh, right. At a local library. In uh, Katy, which is a suburb of Houston. Yes. So that's the Cinco Ranch Branch Library for anybody (laughs) hyper-local in that (laughs) case. But we're all over North America. And keep an eye out if you'd like to attend one of the actual in-person events. It's certainly possible. And things that are percolating is possible speaking and demonstration in Southern California toward the end of the year Yeah, at like an expo trade show. And then there are also things that are percolating that we're developing to speak in a British Columbia and the, and the Pacific Northwest of the U S this summer. And we often do trainings in person as we travel as well. So mm-hmm. if you have your special boxwood or fruit trees and you'd like to meet us in person and have us come out and, and do a training 
by all means, drop us a line. So we are, yes, we have a podcast, but we are mostly out in the garden world doing and and traveling and visiting. So Mm -hmm. um, we'd love to get to connect with you if if that's of interest. Um, And to our international listeners, we'll certainly update you as well when we do some of our international travel. And we travel, I mean, we'll more or less go anywhere, you know, if if it's feasible. Oh, totally. There's no boundaries. (laughs) That's what life is all about. So the reason I mentioned Longview, which is also going to be the subject of your talk here in Houston or Katy, Katy, Texas, we wanted to take the New York talk and share it with our local community. Actually, and again, the reason I brought up that television program is that, you know, we observed before and after kind of of the property after Hurricane Katrina Mm -hmm. affected New Orleans. and. It was like many, many parts of that city, very badly impacted. It took a lot of time to recover. I think the region is still recovering. And so that did sort of become a part of the talk as well is this, just this awareness that many, many of the places where we're living and working, whether it's the Rockaways and the effect of Hurricane Sandy or the South and the effect of Hurricane Katrina or Harvey, we're having to rebound from these events all over the country. So it's a concern. It's affecting many places. So we wanted to address this topic today. This project that you're working on that is near an ocean and a bay and is requiring this thoughtfulness about saltwater planting, what are some of the tips that you can offer listeners? What are some of the plants that you're finding would be good to work with in this setting? There are many plants that are salt tolerant. And so some resources that I found the Brooklyn Botanic Garden had some good info, the Norfolk, which I think is Virginia Botanic Garden. There are many grasses. You imagine coastal areas are full of grasses that would be saltwater tolerant. So grasses in some landscape styles tend to be popular. Some of the oaks. So like one oak that I'm, I think I'm going to utilize is the burr oak, which is tolerant of drought. It's tolerant of sort of the toughest landscape condition would be standing salt water when there's a flood and for the magic number is like if it's 24 hours or more that really does damage and so this bur oak some of the plants it'll say they're mildly salt tolerant which would be a big category but ones that are really tolerant are what i'm going for <laughs> do you know where the what does the bur oak look like can you describe that for our listeners oh sure well it's it's an upright oak and it's more or less as wide as it is tall. So in a coastal area, if it was an inland area, it might get to be 60 feet tall, 60 feet wide. When it's growing in a, in a coastal area, it's not going to get as tall. And so my site research was visiting, well, I was driving through the neighborhoods, seeing, how, seeing the trees that are there, going to, there are some in the Rockaways beachfront public areas that they replanted since Hurricane Sandy, I believe it was, seeing how those plants perform. So the the very strong prevailing winds, it keeps the height of the trees down. That's as I understand it. So the trees are going to be more or less like dwarfed. What's neat about the bur oak is that the acorn looks like burrs. The acorn, as you would imagine, is peeking out, but it's it's a very sort of gnarly looking acorn with burrs on one end of it. Nice. And those are okay for bare beach feet? How would you with the acorns since it's not going to cover the whole property and so it'd be in an area where people is on on this particular 
site design and planning, that's going to be on the south side of the house to sort of cool the house from the midday sun. So it's not going to be a, an area with people traffic. So you definitely have all these competing programs. You kind of have the climates program, which is one thing. And then you have the use of the space. And we're always talking about like really as you're developing a design, whether it's for yourself or for a client, you do sort of have to think through these different elements. You may just think of planting. I know one of your favorites is the sweet gum. Oh, right. (laughs) But if you've ever stepped on those little spiky balls, it's no fun. Is it a barefoot traffic kind of area? And yeah, so you're thinking through all those elements. So that's a really good point with the feet. There's in the front of the house, which was going to be facing west. So it's very hot and sunny. It's coastal. There's not that many trees. So the front of the house, I want it to be an ornamental tree, an upright tree. So the horse chestnut and then sort of a subset, subset of that is the buckeye, which happens to have red flowers. That is not particularly salt tolerant. So that went through the filter in the front of the house. What is reasonable? It, it's something that should look very pretty. If there was a, like a catastrophic storm, those trees might suffer. Now, in other areas where the aesthetics are not as important, but shade is the major goal, then I'm utilizing things that are really salt tolerant. Is there something to be said also for you mentioned the winds dwarfing the trees, but are there some trees that are more prone to breaking, losing limbs in, in high winds? And is there a, essentially a wind program that you have to think of as well? Correct. Right. There would be trees that you would see. There are, are trees where the wind goes through them, where they're somewhat open. So the, in the back of the property, I'm still def- refining it, but a, the Tupelo tree, which is pretty salt tolerant, it's, it's a shade tree doesn't get too big. And one of my favorites for that four season interest, oh, you know, right. if you are doing some of those late fall beach days, mm-hmm. you know, where it's you're, you're bundled up, but it's still sunny and crisp. And you see <laughs> you those, get some of that nice red, red leaf color on the Tupelo. Right. That four season that yeah. is it really during every season? Is there something of interest? The Tupelo, when you're in some of the back roads in the Hamptons, you see wetland areas and there are just stands and stands of Tupelo trees. So it's something that would exist naturally. Maybe another factor is privacy screening. So outdoor spaces and when there's houses in close proximity, the average person wants some privacy. So you're looking at something green and not your, not your neighbors. <laughs> so there's a plant of skip laurel, which can handle high temperatures, sandy soil grows pretty quickly. That is not particularly salt tolerant. So in a key area, I'm proposing that. And then in an area that's not as visible, but where you still want screening, I'm proposing a bayberry, which is, that is very salt tolerant. So it's sort of cutting the risk. And then that's always presented to the client too. This is, I think this is going to look really nice. If there was a bad storm, these might need to be replaced, some of them. And then the client's always it's presenting the risk to them and then letting them decide. And of course, here in the, on the southern coast, the Gulf Coast, palm trees are quite popular there. Mm-hmm. As we were mentioning, the wind, they tend to be wind adapted, I guess. So Correct. You know, there's this flexibility in the trunk and they just kind of go with it in hurricane conditions. And occasionally you see trees down, but it's not these giant limbs that are crushing a car because... I mean, palm trees don't even really have limbs, do they? Correct, right. So anyway, 
are there trees here on the southern coast that are well like saltwater adapted that could kind of hang out if they were inundated? Well, the live oak, I mean, I would say it's like overused, but that is can handle saltwater inundation. Then there's, I believe, there's multiple oaks that can handle, and they're the live oak is appears very wind tolerant too. That it's so low to the ground. The bald cypress, that's very, that's a native plant. That's quite tall. That's wind tolerant. That it's, if I was to generalize, plants where the, the trunk is low to the ground, like where it hugs the ground, like a, like a mushroom <laughs> or a muffin, like the live oak, there's a very large trunk. And then the subsequent limbs are proportionately quite a bit smaller. There's a lot, there's a lot of taper where like, if you think of some of the maple trees, the limbs, which which extend out, could be almost as large as the trunk. Mm. And those are what you see break often. And then the bald cypress has a tremendous taper where it starts out at the base. It gets very wide, and it very quickly gets narrow. So that's adapted to the wind. The branches are very fine, even on an old tree. And so the wind passes through it. So wind and water, wild weather. What about flooding in a place that is not salt water prone? So we're not just thinking salt water is intense. It's a, it's a rough condition for some plants, but of course there are plenty of coasts around the world. And so a lot of plants have adapted to those conditions. And so I'm thinking of now kind of areas, I guess they're not coasts, but riverbanks and things where mm-hmm. maybe levees or rivers are overflowing the water is fresh water it does not have salt in it but one of the things i've sort of understood is a danger in flooding is that it's not safe water like once it overflows the banks it's starting to pick up kind of the pollutants that may be around you know on our roadways or whatever it's just kind of lifting that stuff up and spreading that around which is not a good thing (laughs) but it happens Are there plants that can help kind of filter that or plants that are going to survive that kind of inundation as well? Uh, Good question. Well, that's not my my major area of expertise, but just from basic understanding of of rain gardens and and creating the creation of wetlands, many plants are going to filter. I mean, more or less all plants are going to do some filtering and there are some that would do more than others. So I'm going to guess that the density of roots a plant that is where the roots are very dense are going to do more filtering is my, is my estimate. So grasses have very dense roots, the different types of ornamental grasses, like what you'd see in a wetland or a dune. So which is more, it's often growing in full sun and like some like very popular shrubs and trees would be the red twig dogwood. And there's also a gray twig dogwood. And so those, those spread those more or less colonize where you plant a shrub and there are vertical stems and branches. And then over time it will spread. So it will spread horizontally and grasses will do the same thing. And so a plant like that is going to do a lot of filtering as opposed to a single tree, an oak tree, as it matures, it will do a tremendous amount, but it'll take a long time to get there. So something to think about as we're planning our landscapes, and it's interesting that landscape design really is on the forefront of kind of addressing these issues that certainly we're thinking of zoning and how we build our homes and, you know, raising things up (laughs) is sometimes a solution. Mm -hmm. I think they lifted like the entire city of Chicago at one point 
in its history. Oh, wow. Because it was not, it wasn't built high enough, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Have you been seeing anything in basically, I know you you read a lot of journals on the issue. What are some of the solutions that uh, landscape architects are kind of partnering with civic entities to try to get out ahead of the weather and and climate change and potentially sea level rise? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good questions. Let's see some trends that that I'm aware of. So it's having a public space that has multiple uses. So during a non-storm event that during like a traditional day, it's, it's a multi-use park. And then that word stormwater, either retention or detention. So you're either slowing down the stormwater and then it's eventually going into a waterway or detention where it's, it's going into this area and then it's, it's not leaving until it goes into the ground. So that's been going on for decades, at least. But with many urban projects, it's often it's integrated. Even when we drove from New York State to Texas this summer, some of those water, those riverfront parks that we saw, those are, are designed to flood. So the, the walkways, the railings, the garbage cans, the benches, the trees are meant to, in some cases, to be inundated with water and still and to still survive. So there'd be a cleanup. It would probably be muddy and gritty. It wouldn't destroy it. So creating multi-purpose areas that could also retain water or detain water during a storm. The other factor would be how when there's wave action on coastal areas, what used to be done is having a seawall, having mm-hmm. like, like a constructed wall. So that the energy from the wave is not dissipated. Mm-hmm. It hammers it and it's and then it hammers it again. <laughs> Having a vegetative coast, that's a trend where grasses, shrubs, trees, grading. So there's let's say a mound that does absorb all that that wave action. So that wave action dissipates. And then by the time the water gets inland, the force is greatly reduced. Or maybe the, there's no force left that those Areas that were like in lower Manhattan or the Long Island South Shore, there are projects where they're steering in that direction mm-hmm. of putting in vegetation. Well, and some of that I would imagine is restoration. Like we kind of, right. you know, built on these coasts thinking we could manage <laughs> manage the powers that are out there. But as we've come to find, you know, with or without climate change, the ocean is Stronger than we are, right. it's going to keep sort of persisting, you know, energetically to erode whatever surface is in front of it, unless it has that dissipating action that I think sort of evolves organically when we see coastal wetlands. And if we if we take those away in order to build closer to the ocean and the view, then we put ourselves at a little bit of risk there. So restoring that does seem like a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, managing where people live. That there needs to be a more or less a barrier between the coastlands and where people live. You can it's still you can still be close, but to be right on the edge of the ocean, that might need to be rebuilt every decade. So there was an interesting map. Um, it may have been in it was online, but I think it was in the ASLA journal too, if I recall, where it was it showed the island of Manhattan, the southern tip, like uh, pre-development, so hundreds of years ago. That that was a coastal outline, and then there's a there's the current coast, which is much larger. So the the tip of Manhattan, a lot of that land is landfill. Mm. 
The same is true in the San Francisco Bay Area and and probably a lot of the coastal areas. You're trying to get more out of the coastline. So I can imagine that's true. I know in the Bay Area, it's a bit of a concern in terms of earthquakes. Oh, right. To be on landfill. Um, So, you know, I'm sure the construction requirements are important there, but I could see how perhaps they filled the land, but they didn't also kind of move forward with the planting of coastal wetlands in a way that would then protect the interior. Right. So the during Hurricane Sandy, the areas that flooded were landfill. Areas that didn't flood were the original coastline. So there's a direct correlation to where land is being altered. It's going to flood. I mean, it was it's above sea level, but not significantly. And so that's always a factor. So to make to, to raise areas when there's existing buildings and roads, it might not be practical, but you can more or less make it flood proof or flood tolerant where with some of these constructions, you have, let's say, a first floor garage on like a beach house and then everything else is, on, is higher. And there's even vents in the garage where when, when during a flood, the water, it can pass into the garage. There are like gates that open so the water can easily pass through that, that first story. It can come in and then it can come out. Well, it certainly is an, a rich area for kind of participating in in change, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. we can't all, of course, I think as a species, we're sort of confronting some of this climate change and what can we do and how can we make a difference and to be in this industry and thinking carefully about what's being planted and where and how and what kind of impact it can make is a big deal for people coming into this industry and mm-hmm. kind of working with, again, municipalities, communities, even individual clients to try and make a difference and, and allow us to still enjoy a special landscape, but one that is responsive to what's going on. Right. Yeah, I agree. Like the plants that can sustain a storm, so they're going to provide all the benefits of taking up storm water, providing shade which will cut down on energy costs, more or less thinking of plants as permanent infrastructure, that, it's, that they can sustain, s- sustain the ups and downs of weather. So let's say you, we, you know, we've talked about real estate and preparing to buy a home and some of the inventory that you want to take to see what may or may not work in a spot. What if you are buying your first beach house? Congratulations. <laughs> Squad goals, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> or, you know, I'm also thinking, I did mention our neighbors in Chicago, they're on a whole other, you know, lake coast, the North coast an or... inland ocean, as it were. But I'm thinking of winter and the use of salt during winter for roads. And oh, that we're talking about inundation from the ocean, but in a, in a cold climate, there may be salt as a component to the soil and the water in the area that you're not even might be mindful of, but perhaps not. So what do we do to see... There's a reason maybe that our front yard plantings are doing poorly or we're, mm-hmm. again, as I said, in, you know, moving into our first beach house. What do we do to kind of check out the landscape to decide what we want to plant there? Can oh. you tell if it's been flooded before, for example? Oh, yeah. Right. Good question. There was on the Brooklyn Botanic Garden website, there's an article on coastal gardening post Sandy, which would be Hurricane Sandy. And so you might not be aware of if the, let's say you purchased the property after a hurricane, or maybe you weren't there during that, you weren't sure to what extent it flooded. So there could be salt from the salt water 
or in a city, in an urban area, or wherever you might be, there could be salt to melt the ice. And so that stays in the soil. So you, a soil test can be done where you test for the soluble salts, and it would tell you what the, what the level was and if it's acceptable. So many trees that we've discussed, well, like the bald cypress, the honey locust, uh, some of the oaks, they are tolerant of salts. So they work in a coastal area. They're also good urban trees, street trees, for that same reason. So there's sort of where the future is going. It's more extreme weather, drought, flooding. Salt is some often worked in there. So it's, it's similar trees that, are, that keep appearing hmm. and, and other shrubs. So having my suggestion would be, is to still have diversity of species. So it's, what has been done is that there were a plant that seemed to be like a miracle plant, and then it's overused. And then it's risky, because if that mm-hmm. plant succumbs to some other issue that you can't foresee decades in advance. So having, still having diversity in the plantings. Yeah, monocultures are not, have not proved to be very successful Correct. <laughs> for a lot of reasons. You know, and I'm also thinking when we moved here to the Houston area, we did not, I think we were both in the New York area when Sandy came through, mm-hmm. but we were not here when Harvey was around. The hurricane. And yes. And, yes. <laughs> Although I have, I have been flooded into a parking lot. The, the water rises really quickly here. So we take it very seriously. But we had to look at, at the inundation maps from FEMA. That Things are sort of out there that you can try to get a picture of how likely it is your area is going to flood. I mean, that's just sort of an important consideration these days if you're on the coast, regardless of what your landscape design aspirations right. are. Now, what would be, what, maybe you could explain what FEMA is. Federal Emergency Management Association, Associate, probably. Administration. Administration. Probably. I don't know. <laughs> Our listeners are always welcome to correct us. We'll do a correction next time if you send us an email. But it's essentially a government agency at the federal level that comes through and it supports people after a natural disaster. Of course, there's a lot of non-governmental agencies that do this, that also assist. And they, because flooding has become kind of a national concern, there are maps that talk to you or show you information about flooding so you can decide whether you need flood insurance and at what level mm-hmm. and essentially give you a sense of the waterways so that you just sort of know you know, we are a part of a flooding ecosystem here that has mm-hmm. always been the case for the Houston area. Mm-hmm. And it's important to kind of acknowledge that. And then you can prepare as best you're able to mm-hmm. to meet that condition when it arises, whether it's through insurance or planting plants that will kind of survive and, and make it out <laughs> for next season. You know, if there's software GIS. So it's for most regions in the world that are developed have that. So you could look up and there's all different more or less layers. So you could research your own property. And then there's often a layer you could turn on where it would say, is this within a flood zone? And then to what extent? Or it's like those terms, is it a, a 10-year storm, a 50- or 100-year storm? So when you're purchasing property, that information, it's not in bold print that it's in a flood zone. It might be in very fine print, but it's, it's often available. Just take a little digging. And then the flood maps would in Houston with the FEMA maps, as I understand it, they had not been updated. So there was a lot of development occurred in recent decades. So the the maps they were going on, as I understand it, 
they were basing it pre-development. So imagine you put in lots of houses, parking lots, shopping malls, that that's going to, that water's not going to drain into the ground. It's mm-hmm. going to go into a storm sewer or into a canal. Which is certainly part of the purview of landscape designers, then whether they're at the civic level or, you know, ha- development level, that permeable surface area that we're trying to preserve is an important consideration mm-hmm. in this career, for sure. Um, and something that homeowners can be mindful of as they're requesting things for their design. There's a lot of permeable like driveway paving. If you need to add a mm-hmm. patio, maybe there's an option that works for you that's not going to create more hard surfaces because it does make it difficult for water to kind of come and go <laughs> in mm-hmm. the way that it's meant to. Right. So one thing we should mention as we're talking about, I don't know, planting natives, planting things that would be hardy in these conditions Just to borrow your own phrasing, we love our local nurseries. We do. Mm -hmm. But the nursery doesn't have, as you said, an agenda to sell you a flood-tolerant plant necessarily. They want things that are beautiful and look good on the shelves. And there's a lot of different types of nurseries. But if you really want to find these plants because you have an agenda to to plant them, where do you go? First of all, to, to find out what to plant and then to actually purchase them. Well, in the United States resources, there's, if you live in an area that has a local botanic garden, they may list flood tolerant plants and they could really specify, is it salt tolerant? Is it, can it handle wet soil to be inundated where it's like standing soil for 24 hours? That will kill a lot of plants. Standing water. Standing water. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. No, it's okay. (laughs) Uh, So the, then there's like a lack of oxygen. So that's a big category. If it's a flood area. The land grant universities, and then there's sort of as part of that, there's the local cooperative extension. They often would would provide a plant list. In some reasons, there's a naturalist, and so a naturalist could come to your. I've uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension provides this resource where, if the property is of a certain size, you can make an appointment, and a naturalist or a forester would come to the property for a free consultation, and their aim would be to guide you to planting native plants. And if there's invasive plants on the property, vines or other to remove those. So there's lots of resources out there. Great. So we certainly, since our orientation is here in North America, have been talking about the conditions on our specific coasts. I know some of our international listeners may have experienced flooding recently. Right. And like in the UK, we've seen that. Yeah. Devastating. So it's certainly not isolated to just this country or this region of the world. And so we're certainly thinking of anyone who's experienced flooding. It's, it's very scary and certainly upsetting. And having some, some of our living organisms make it through as well. So it's not a complete devastating loss, I think, is sort of in the spirit of perseverance and rebuilding. And so we hope that you'll find a way to have a landscape that is Resilience, as I think many of the people who live in these areas have to be resilient and kind of, you know, emerge from these experiences with that spirit of carrying on, as it were. Right. Like you could probably speak to this in California, but I believe it was in the news about Australia. So there were horrible, unimaginable fires. And so then after a a fire of that nature, there's often flooding. There's no, the veget, the undergrowth. So there are plants and that erosion. are and erosion. Mm-hmm. So that causes, there's these subsequent 
like a domino effect. So plant, there are plants that are fire tolerant, that are drought tolerant, or grasses that even after a fire very quickly grow back. Well, they have those root systems that also help. Like the roots are still embedded in the soil, kind of holding it together. Right, correct. As opposed to a shallow root system. And, you know, so it's important to be mindful of these things. We're all certainly experiencing, I would suggest, more, more frequent, more intensity, whether mm-hmm. it's fire, flooding, erosion. And kind of banding together and thinking about what we can do in the landscape to hold firm and kind of sustain ourselves, I think is Mm -hmm. an important consideration. So we've barely scratched the surface. Of course, we welcome feedback and any ideas that you might have, anything that's worked for you or questions you might have if you're facing difficult growing conditions and you want some suggestions. Mm -hmm. So um, anything else before we end the episode today? Um, I think that's about it. I think we covered a, a, a broad range. <laughs> yeah. And it always spurs more research and development. You know, our conversations lead to more questions. Certainly. So we look forward to another lively discussion in the landscape next week. Thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to the next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.